0: My is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, the trenchant views of Scotland's first black professor, Sir Jeff Palmer. Jeff was born in Jamaica in 1940 and came to the UK to join his mum. He was part of the Windrush generation just before his 15th birthday. She got him a job, but immigration officials said he had to go to school, where he was promptly classed as subnormal. He was only saved by chance from a life of menial work when the head of the local grammar school spotted his cricketing abilities and snapped him up to play in the school team. Jeff eventually went on to enjoy a distinguished scientific career, but not before encountering Mrs Thatcher's economics guru, Sir Keith Joseph, at an interview panel.
1: He just said, you know, why don't I go home and grow bananas? But I did point out to him, it's difficult to grow bananas in Harringay.
0: <laughs> in later years, Sir Jeff went on to discover a method of speeding up the process of turning barley into malt, saving the brewing industry untold millions of pounds. He's also written about the legacy of slavery in his book, The Enlightenment Abolished, and revealed that his own ancestors were bought and sold like livestock. More recently, he's had one of Scotland's most prominent landmarks in his sights, the Melville Monument, in Edinburgh's new town, erected in honour of Henry Dundas, the first Viscount Melville, a former First Lord of the Admiralty. Dundas successfully argued for the gradual, rather than immediate, abolition of slavery.
1: I calculated that in 15 years, about 630,000 Africans were transported into slavery on the basis of one word, gradual. One word. And what was the one word for? He actually said to the parliament that the gradual was to protect the financial position of slave owners, to give them time to get used to the idea of the abolition of the trade. They can start a breeding program.
0: Much more thought-provoking stuff on slavery, colonialism and education to come from Sir Geoff Palmer. First a reminder that the Byline Times is funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which costs just £39 a year. It is a great read and your subscription helps to support Byline TV and our brilliant news-breaking website as well. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Now, Sir Jeff Palmer, who's been telling me about his amazing life, which began in Jamaica.
1: I lived in Kingston and my mother came to the UK in 1951. She came in 51 to work because there wasn't much work in Jamaica for somebody like her. And my father had left in about 1947. My mother left me with her, her sisters, my aunts, and they looked after me from 1951 until she sent enough money to pay my fare, which was £86, pounds, to come to join her in 1955. I travelled on my own in 1955. I flew to New York and then got a boat to Liverpool, the Ascania, part of the Cunard Lion Company. And I had to meet her in Paddington. Of course, arriving at Liverpool, I had no idea where Paddington was. So I had to ask around the streets in Liverpool for directions to Paddington. And this is a boy who had not travelled out of Jamaica before or not travelled more than within the confines of Jamaica to go to Sunday school picnics. I arrived in Paddington and my mother met me and took me home to her single room in Islington. Islington wasn't posh then. So she lived in a house with about six other families and she had an attic room. And she didn't tell me I was going to go to work. I just thought I came. I hadn't thought about it. No idea. But she took me out the house the next morning to go to work. She got me a job in a milk shop where that was you made sandwiches. And I delivered them to the factories nearby in East End. And we lived in that area. And she worked in East End as a dress finisher. So fortunately for me, while I'm talking to you today, there was a man at the door from the immigration services. And he said to my mother, where are you going? And my mother says, we're going to work. That's March 1955. And the man said, you can go to work, but he can't. He's not 15. And my mother said, but he's 14 years and 11 months. And he said, I don't make the rules. He's got to go to school. And she begged and she pleaded. She said, "She keep me home for a month? He said, no. And that's why I believed in the rule of law. It can be used for good or bad. But this time it was, for me, turned out to be good because I went to the local comprehensive and they said I was educationally subnormal. I then was taken to Shelburne Road Secondary Mods. Fortunately, the headmaster said I should stay until summer because it was Easter time. It wasn't even a month. So I stayed. Unfortunately for summer, I played cricket. And the Islington Gazette reported that. Because within that period, I got picked for playing for London. So I was playing for the London Schoolboys cricket team, which is a prerogative of grammar school boys. That's how it was news, local news.
0: Being spotted as a talented cricketer was your passport to grammar school. But I want to yep. talk about this diagnosis of being educationally subnormal, because we know that sadly, African Caribbean boys still are seen as underperformers in terms yeah. of academic achievement uh, across the UK. And I wonder whether your personal experience has some relationship to that, whether you can identify with the difficulties of young black boys today in our school system. Yes.
1: Yeah, of course. I think the point is that if you have people living within what I would call a house, so their relationship with a community is not wide. And if you have that, you might as well be living in Jamaica or somewhere else. Because in my book, which I call The Enlightenment, what I talked about was system consciousness. If you don't have that, then you're not going to be able to perform. You can't have equal opportunity with inequalities in education and skills. So therefore, the diagnosis is going to be the same. You don't have to be in some country abroad to not understand the culture. You can be living right here. But if you're in isolation, living in a tight community situation and you don't have opportunities to relate with a wider community, then of course the tests are going to be still Eurocentric. And that's the nature of, of prejudgment. Because you're here, you're supposed to be like everybody else. That's not necessarily the case if you are living in almost a forced isolation.
0: The research shows that black people are more likely to access higher education than average, but are less likely to obtain higher grades, less Mm -hmm. likely to enter prestigious universities, less likely Mm -hmm. to get what are regarded as highly skilled jobs. So Mm -hmm. how do we address that structural problem that you have identified and that you yourself were a victim of by being described as educationally subnormal?
1: I think what we have to do is to try, when, say, children are at school, is not make it so they just go to school, return home. was what I was saying, that you have a, a home situation which, for all sorts of reasons, do not relate with the community as it should. So we have to get the schools have got a job to do. When I went to school, my success is related to, I'm not a self-made man. I'm a people-made person. So the man at the door, the headmaster at the secondary model took me in for a term rather than a month. The grammar school, who had me transferred, but when I was there, gave me, at Highbury, we did all kinds of things, plays, I got to play the cricket, so I was moving around. And, of course, I was behind educationally. I didn't pass the 11 plus. I didn't have that education to get in. But I had teachers who were talking about Faulkner and Hemingway and telling me to go to the library and read, and I did. So I had people around who were giving me this education Beyond maths and physics. And that's what has helped me. So, the schools of these children have got a a job to do because it's meeting a need. A school is not just there to teach you to read and write, it's supposed to meet a need. And I think we need to then adjust our school system because we've got a diverse society. We should have a diverse school system in order to ensure that people come out with the same capacities.
0: It is remarkable that you were, as I say, tagged as educationally subnormal and Uh went on to become a professor, went Uh on to create a process which has made millions of pounds or saved many millions of pounds for the brewing industry. Uh How do you think racism in the system at that stage of your life, worked against you, why were you classed as subnormal? (laughs) It's baffling when you look at your later career.
1: Yeah, I think what it does show is that from all over the world, we've got to try and educate as many people as we can. The work I've done is probably not that significant, but it probably wouldn't be done if I hadn't done it. And therefore, different human beings have got different capacities. And we go around enslaving 25 million people, giving them a lifespan of less than 10 years. We don't know what their capacities were. One of them could have produced children who could have solved the cancer problem. And thus, this is how I look at it. I think what we've got is a system that has prejudgment wired into it about race. For example, in a situation not long ago where I went to give a talk, and I arrived, the attendant said, can I help you? And I said, I've come to give a talk. And she said, what time? And I said, two o'clock. And she said, you can't be given a talk at two o'clock. That talk has been given by Professor Jack Palmer.
0: <laughs> Man, that's shocking, isn't it?
1: That's where we are. And we are there because of prejudgment. People think they can get away with it. But they don't even mean it. They don't know it's there. When I came here in 1955, the negative aspect was about Jewish people. The names in school, they weren't black, they weren't about black people. You was know, Oswald Mosley walking around the streets where I lived in, in North London and stopping my mother and I from going to her, her house. We had to walk around the block. And it is when our system allows people to give me a test which was so Eurocentric in 1955, like, you know, what was Big Ben and the hell should I know <laughs> in 1955? can design anything to make anybody look silly, Any, anybody. To me, we must have, therefore, an educational system which accommodates diversity.
0: Because you, know? you were asked in that test on arrival mm-hmm. at school... A detail about Big Ben, but of course, you were a recent arrival in the country. You had no knowledge yep. of Big Ben, and nor could you reasonably be expected to have done it's so. To know. But that, that's was, right. that was one of the bases on which you were described as subnormal.
1: But yeah, and that's why I said that these tests, which are Eurocentric, they still are. And if kids are brought up in home condition that excludes them from knowing about their community as a whole, then they yeah. are going to underperform if the tests are based on that, English literature or whatever. And that is one of the problems. As I said, my teacher at Highbury, um, Jerry Ward, we called him, he used to tell us as working class, both black and white kids, you know, we, we were in hybrid. And Jerry used to read us Hemingway or Steinbeck or Faulkner, and he would deal with aspects of it. And he said, well, go to the library and stuff. And I did. And I think that has helped me to understand people's behaviors and attitudes by having that kind of education. Okay. When I left in 1958, my A-levels weren't all that good and whatever, but I could go in for a job at Queen Elizabeth's College as part of London University. And I met Professor Chapman and he's the same. That's why my name is Jeff. My name isn't Jeff, it's Godfrey. (laughs) And and Garth Chapman, Just came in the room and he said, what's your name, young man? And I said, Godfrey Henry Oliver Palmer. He said, can I call you Jeff? And you can have the job. I think that's a big deal. So I said, fine. A lot of people say, oh, he's changed your name. It's nonsense. The point is that he recognized that I had some abilities. And one day he stopped me and said, I'm going to give you some time off. Because he knew I was... Coming to work one period erratically because I was helping my mother to save our accommodation because the landlord had turned the water off in the middle of London. We had no water, and he locked the kitchen, turned it into a room. And my mom was fighting, and she didn't have the capacity, so I had to go to the library and read up about the law in terms of furnished, part furnished, unfurnished, to go to the Angel's Magistrate Court to save our accommodation, and I did. But what is interesting, Chapman found all that out, and he gave me some time off, and he said, I want you out this building by 1961. Between, that's between 58 and 61. And I got four A-levels with good marks, six O-levels, and no British university would take me, the ones I applied to. And he found that extraordinary. And as a long story short, he just phoned up Leicester University. And that's how I got into Leicester in 1961.
0: Along the way in your academic career, you had an encounter with a man who was later to become a minister (laughs) in Margaret Thatcher's government, Sir Keith Joseph.
1: Yeah, I did. After I finished my degree in 1964, I got an honours degree in botany. And I, you know, went back to London with my mother and I couldn't get a job. So the the true story is I was given two jobs, one in a betting shop and the other one peeling potatoes. So I thought peeling potatoes was closer to botany than working in a betting shop. And I knew the person who ran the betting shop anyway. So it would have been a bit embarrassing me applying for a job. In the famous betting shop, which um, became Mecca, <laughs> and a um, betting shop company. So I was peeling potatoes from June 1964 until December. And I had the famous interview with, with Sir Keith. It was a group of them. And he he just said, you know, why don't I go home and grow bananas? But I did point out to him, it's difficult to grow bananas in harringay Um, which I think they got the message. Um, You didn't get the job. No, I didn't get the job. In fact, when when people think that, oh, you're making that up, the guy after me, I've never said this before, this is the first time, the guy who was interviewed after me came out and he was furious. And I said to him, what happened? And he said, that guy, I'm a chemist. And he asked me, what is the chemical composition of dirt? (laughs) <laughs> and so in those days there was an attitude which one could say it was racial but it was so embedded in terms of trying to wrong foot people it was a sense of elitism which is part of racism
0: that's really interesting yeah. because earlier you touched on the legacy of slavery and the way you describe educational underachievement, you're suggesting there's a continuum through colonialism, slavery, and educational underachievement today.
1: Oh, yes, very much so. The fact is that in terms of slavery, if I were to say to you, you where did the race concept come from? Why am I a different race from you? I asked that at a big meeting I spoke to recently. I say, tell me why I'm a different race from you. You can tell me why you treat me differently because you think, "Well, you're different. You are supposed to be less intelligent than us. You're supposed to be more dodgy. You're supposed to don't have our our capacities. And I said, does that make me a different race in terms of my humanity? I say, what you're describing is what somebody's told you. (laughs) Have you any evidence for that? And the point is that then people just back off. Because in 1753, David Hume got up one morning, the great mind, and said, Negroes are inferior to white. And Kant, the philosopher, picked that up and tacked it on to groups of people and called it race. That's the origin. It has no scientific basis. It's a myth. It's made up. In fact, I used to say to my students, you know, that's an opinion my students used to say to me, well, that's my opinion, you know. You can't get me to change it. That's what I believe is the case. And I said, "Okay, there are two planes on the runway. One's built by a guy who's got an opinion. He can build a plane. The other one is built by an engineer who has been trained to build a plane. Which one would you fly in? I said, that's the value of an opinion without evidence. If it's going to kill you, you don't really believe it. But if it isn't, you'll push it and kill all the people.
0: And yet the idea of racial difference, of racial supremacy and racial inferiority has been handed down through the generations. Right. How, do you, right. how do you account for that? I mean, it's such a a slight start, isn't it? Albeit that these were very powerful and influential people, it's such a slight start for such a, a pernicious and powerful idea which still holds sway today.
1: That's right. It killed Floyd. You look at the Chauvin's face with his hands in his pocket over nine minutes. That's Hume. That's Kant. And although it may seem a slight start, the Ten Commandments may seem a slight start. <laughs> so it's what people say that relates to what you see and then twisting it in order to justify something. So human can't justify the enslavement of black people. If they're inferior, we can enslave them. It's a powerful start. People look around for a situation and find a very simple statement to fit it. The Germans did it during the war with the Jewish people. Simple statement. I said to somebody yesterday, what would help us in this world today is academic institution that still teach Canton Hume to come out and say that aspect of their work that relates to race and to people's capacities is a myth. That would change attitudes for the better.
0: So when people talk about decolonizing the curriculum, yeah. that's the kind of thing that they might be
1: talking about. But to me, that's not just decolonizing That's correcting the concept that we are different humanities, different species. This is how it started as well. The race concept came after the species concept because these people are different, so they were using the taxonomic concepts then. And to make black people different, they had to be different species. But then the definition of species was that your offspring could not reproduce. Two species, a dog and a cat, can't produce viable offspring. And even if they did, like the donkey and the horse, can produce a mule, but the mule is infertile. The trouble with human beings, they found out we're all infertile, <laughs> so it, it messed up the species. So, race came in because race means you can interbreed, and therefore it sounds a simple beginning. But scientifically, it was complex, and therefore they had to change from species. Even Darwin used the word species. The point is that all human beings were are and we can uh, offspring can produce fertile offspring. That's the science. The science saved us because they'd have saved you a different species, and therefore. What we're talking about decolonizing, to me, that should be included because decolonizing is about invasion, military management, economic management. To me, this is where if the genetics had fitted the prejudgment, we would even have more trouble than we've got today. So the world now knows so much more about this history. And as I said to an ed teacher the other day, we've got to know the lie to tell the truth. We've got to know the lie about race and racism. It's to provide an excuse so that when you're enslaving people in the Caribbean, you can say, but we abolished slavery. Miners weren't slaves in that sense. The slaves in the Caribbean were chattel slaves with no right to life and was property. And thus compensation was paid in 1833-34. There were no legality. All slavers are wrong, I'm not saying that, but we mustn't compare the slaveries because it provided an excuse to use one to negate the other so one can continue to do evil by saying, yes, we've got slaves too. All slaveries must be defined and they must not be compared. And to me, you're talking about decolonization. That's decolonization. It's to make the public aware of an injustice. To me, that is decolonizing.
0: Henry Dundas was a man who held up the abolition of slavery. Of the slave trade of the slave trade, and there is a monument to him in Edinburgh, the Melville Monument. There's been a lot of discussion, of course, following the the crowd throwing the statue of Edward Colston into the harbour at Bristol about what we should do with the statues of people who are associated with the slave trade. And you've taken a stance around the Melville Monument. Yes.
1: My stance is simple. I looked at the plaque which has been there for about 200 years. And I just looked at it and it said nothing about this man being involved in slavery. That simple as that. (laughs) It's 150 feet high. The way I approach it, I ask the question, which I will ask you. I say to people, you've heard of William Wilberforce. Have you heard of Henry Dundas? (laughs) And they usually say no. Say, well, you can't know about Wilberforce unless you know about Dundas. Because Dundas held up Wilberforce for 15 years in Parliament. And Wilberforce, in 1792, put forward a bill to say the slave trade should be abolished immediately. And Dundas said it should be abolished gradually. And Dundas had his way. So it's a parliamentary decision. And it was held up for 15 years, till 1807, 1792 to 1807. Unfortunately, Dundas was impeached in 1806. This is the man who was Minister of War. He controlled the military. He was Home Secretary. He was President of the Board of Control, so he controlled India. He was also Treasurer of the Navy, and he selected governors for the colonies. So he sent the Duke of Wellington's brother to India to get rid of the Sultan of Mysore. And he did. He sent Earl Balcaras to Jamaica. And Earl Balcaras became a slave owner, the governor, and then transported the Maroons to Nova Scotia. He went to San Domingo and destroyed Haiti. It still recovered. Lost 40,000 British troops doing it. And this is a man standing there 150 feet high in a statue, not a word of that on his plaque. Fortunately, in 1806, a politician, Samuel Whitbread, a brewer, impeached him for taking Navy's money. Impeached. He's the last British politician to be impeached.
0: But your view of the Melville Monument, if I understand it correctly, is that it shouldn't be pulled over. It shouldn't be demolished. Absolutely. But
1: the plaque should be amended. That's right. And it may sound, as you said once before, it sounds a small thing. (laughs) But small things are powerful things if they are based on good reason. And the point is that Coulson's statue has been taken down. What has happened since? Um, This is my view. Things should not be done in terms of response to emotion only. The point is that the next statue down should be racism. You take that down, we can then have a discussion. The next statue down should be racism. Because Coulson's statue has done nothing. If we look at the Dundas statue about changing the plaque, well, we had great opposition from the present Vyka, the tenth viscount Melville was the first Vyka. And historians, white historians, have attacked me to say, I'm not a historian. I'm a brewer. I did point out it was a brewer that impeached Dundas. (laughs) So be careful of brewers. (laughs) Um, It was a brewer that delivered the abolition of slavery in 1838. It was Buxton. Look at your old five-pound note. He's on the back of it. So brewers have probably got a, despite they sell drink, they've got probably a social morality, which probably other people should look at, because two brewers have made, two of the most significant actions in our history in terms of human rights. And therefore, to me, the plaque is critical. We had a committee for about three years and nothing happened. It was historian and the Viscount in opposition to myself and another person, Gold Ramsey. And the council then closed the committee. Sadly, but fortunately for the change, the death of George Floyd and the move to Black Lives Matter, I gave a speech in the park, and I brought up the statue again. And I said, it's morally right to, to change, is black. The point is that I calculated that in 15 years, about 630,000 Africans were transported into slavery on the basis of one word, gradual. One word. And what was the one word for? He actually said to the parliament that the gradual was to protect the financial position of slave owners, to give them time to get used to the idea of the abolition of the trade. They can start a breeding program for breeding slaves. Now, historians have not made a big deal of that. So, fortunately, the present leader of the council rang me and said, Jeff, do you like to join a committee? We're going to reform the committee. And within five days, we got a new narrative for that plaque. And it's you look on your computers, it's on there. And it is saying quite clearly that he gradually abolished the slave trade and transported over half a million people into slavery. And this plaque is dedicated to those who suffered, dedicated. And it will be permanently installed soon, not just as a temporary plaque, which is now up next to it. And it's wonderful to stand and watch people reading it. You see, there's a sense of incredulity on their faces. Well, it must be true if it's on there now. But gosh, what a horrible thing for anybody to have done. And I think that will change attitudes. You know, as I've said, we cannot change the past, but we can change the consequences, such as racism for the better, using education. And a plaque is education. Taking down a statue is responding to how people feel. But I'm pretty tough on that. My ancestors were slaves, chattel slaves in in Jamaica. They had to face slave owners. You tell me I can't face a bit of metal standing in a park. <laughs> you know, it's, it's ridiculous. I can assure you there are some people who'd run the statue down and put a plaque on it, speaking the truth. So taking down a statue, we've got to be careful of that. We're probably doing what some racists want, taking them down because they're no longer there <laughs> for them to feel guilty about. That's another way of looking at it. That's when if you're brought up in Jamaica where I was and in Islington where I was, you see things slightly different.
0: <laughs> Sir Jeff Palmer, who is Professor Emeritus in Life Sciences at Harriet Watt University. If you want to comment on anything Sir Jeff has had to say, do get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. That's goldberg radio at gmail.com or join the conversation on Twitter at byline times pod. We've also got Byline Radio coming soon, so stay tuned for more news. This has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Thanks for listening. See you next time.